Well, guys, you guys can go ahead and grab a seat. We're thrilled to have you guys here this summer Sunday for us. Just as a reminder for you guys, this is our last summer Sunday. So how many of you guys have finals in the next couple of days? We'll be praying for you, all right? Uh, we, just as a reminder for you guys, the 17th and the 24th, we will not be meeting. And so we will reconvene here at 11 o'clock uh, on Sunday, August 31st as our first fall Sunday when everybody's back. So we'll reconvene here uh, at 11 and at 7 here at Anderson on the 31st and also at 11 o'clock at our Southwood campus on the 31st. So thank you guys for being here with us this summer. On our last summer Sunday, you guys have an incredible privilege to hear from Dusty Stone. Dusty has been interning with us this year. Yes, Dusty is loved. You guys are going to be incredibly blessed to hear from Dusty. I'll tell you guys, Dusty also, not only will be speaking with us this morning, but uh, this will be his last summer Sunday, sorry, his last Sunday at all with college ministry. So Dusty is uh, hanging around, going to be uh, serving with youth ministry next year. And so we're incredibly excited for uh, the youth here at Grace uh, to get to have Dusty helping lead in that context. And so uh, you guys, I want you guys to know, just in terms of Dusty, I'll tell you guys, it has been an incredible joy to get to serve with this guy, an incredible joy to get to walk with this guy. A few guys, I feel like, love the Lord and love people so well. Uh, Dusty is an incredibly gifted communicator, which you guys are going to get to see this morning. And, and specifically getting to see Dusty in this last year in ministry, I'll tell you guys, he is a developer of men. It's been fun mm-hmm. to see the guys that have come up and from behind Dusty, not just this year as an intern, but even as he was a student here serving in our small groups and our Bible studies. And so... I want you guys to formally welcome Dusty. Uh, you guys are going to have a great morning getting to hear from Dusty. Dusty, we love you. I'm crazy about you, man, and excited for what the Lord has for you with youth next year, man. So thanks for being here with us. It was awesome being in college ministry last year or this past year, and it'll be awesome being in youth. But I am excited to be here today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. This is going to be our focus passage today. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1, verses 1 through 9. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I, have, and I live among people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with the burning coals and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go. Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to get to worship you um, here in open and we're thankful for that. God, we admit right now that you are eternally amazing. There is no one like you. And we, we love you. We worship you because of who you are. And the things that you've done for us, the things that you've done in history, the things that you're doing right now, and the things that you will do. Um, Lord, we, we praise you. We also admit that apart from you, apart from your spirit within us and your presence, that we can't understand your word. And 
So we ask that you would be here this morning and that you would fill this room, that we would understand your scripture uh, for what it was meant to be, and that you'd use me and the personality and the passions you've given me to, to accurately t- teach your word. Lord, I also pray for life transformation, not just from the congregation or the people who are here, but from me as well, that through your word today that I will be transformed and that also uh, those who are listening will be transformed. Lord, we, we love you. We lift up this time to you. It's all in your son's name. Amen. Well, when I was young and a child, a little boy, I was homeschooled from first grade to 12th grade, and it was cool. It was cool, actually. But when I was young, I would get up, and I had this idea of what was truly worthy, what was worth my time, what, what I would look forward to at the end of the day. So I'd get up, have some breakfast, do school, kind of. And then I would go, and me and my brother would go and find what was truly worth our time. And that was being professional plumbers, saving the world. All right. So yeah, we were the Mario Brothers all the time. I was always Luigi because he was taller, and he, my brother was always Mario. But anyways, yeah. So we thought being a video gamer was awesome. Not only that, we would actually feel like we were in the world of Mario, and we would play for hours. So we thought that was worthy. But then I got a little older, and I got into high school, and my, my idea of worthiness changed. I uh, spent a lot of time in high school pursuing the opposite gender. I thought girls were awesome. And girls are awesome, but yeah, a little too much. I thought it was a little too much. I pursued them. I never dated in high school, but I definitely liked girls in high school. And I would spend all my time thinking about how can I get in a relationship with a girl. And I never did because I was scared. But, um, but yeah, so I thought girls were awesome. Then, then I got to college and things changed. I met this one awesome girl. Her name is Sarah. And she's my wife. Uh, so I met Sarah and my idea of worthiness changed completely. I spent so many hours figuring out how I can pursue her, how I can show her that I love her unconditionally. I, I came up with words like sweetheart and babe, like I would call her that, because uh, those words of endearment, you know? And I would, I figured out how can I communicate to her that I desperately long to, to love her and, and always be hers. So I pursued her. I spent my time, I spent too much time uh, my grades kind of went bad, but then I spent more time with her, and then she would help me because she's a really smart student. And so I, I got better grades towards the end. Uh, yeah, so now she's incredible. She's, a, she's an amazing person, and I love her. She is worth it. She's worth my time. But now that I'm married, things kind of changed. Sarah's awesome still, don't get me wrong. But I still have to go back to, at the end of the day, I want to spend time with the Mario Brothers. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, but seriously, I do love video games, and I've learned how to control my appetite for video games by basically not having more video games, and I just don't play them anymore. But I really love them. I love playing Mario Brothers. I think it's fun, but they're not as worth it to me anymore. Why? Because true worthiness, there's only true, one true person, one thing in this world that's truly worthy of our time. And that is, that's God. God alone is worthy 
of my time, of my efforts, my life. God alone is worthy of your time, your efforts, your life. So you're going to A&M, you're getting a degree at A&M, an awesome university that's very prestigious, but that degree means nothing if you're not doing it for the Lord. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about three different things, why God is worthy of your worship. So let's look at the text. Verses 1 through 3. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So first thing I want to get here, get out of this verse, is that God is worthy because God is the greatest. There are some great people out there. There are some people who do great things. I hope I do great things. I, I hope I do. Uh, I'm pretty sure I do. Uh, but we, we, Johnny Manziel, he does great things. He can throw the football really well. He can run around like a maniac really well. But he does, people do great things. We can do great things. But they're not truly great compared to God. And that's what we're going to see here in this text. We're going to see a lot of things, but we're going to focus on just a couple. And the first thing I want us to look at is this phrase, holy, holy, holy. See, God is so holy, they had to say it three times. Basically, when you see in Scripture a repeated word, which we only see it in this context, attributing to God's holiness, it's, it's a way for the Hebrews or the Greeks to emphasize something. So, for example, in the Abrahamic covenant, at Genesis chapter 20, 21 or 22, one of the two, God tells Abraham, you will, this will surely, surely happen. We don't read that in the English, but in the Hebrew, that's what, that's what it says. It will surely, surely happen. That's a repeated word. It's an emphasis. But here, only when God is being attributed to holiness, only then do we see Hebrews emphasize a word three times. It's because they want the audience. God wants you and me to know that he is literally, hands down, no, no argument, holy. It's like us underlining a word or when we italicize a word or bold it. That's basically what they're doing. Only they're emphasizing it three times. It's for sure going to happen. We can do that kind of in our language. It doesn't sound as cool but it is cool. So like, I can say Sarah is beautiful, but if I really want to emphasize it in my speech, I would say she's beautiful, beautiful. She's pretty, pretty. She's hot, hot. Oh, I didn't say that. Uh, uh, so here in, the, here, here in Isaiah, Isaiah is seeing this happen. The angels are singing this to God, and they're saying God is holy, holy, holy. There is no one like him. What does holiness mean? Why would they say this three times? Because holiness just literally means to be set apart. And the fact that they're emphasizing this three times is because they're emphasizing that he is set apart, set apart, set apart from all of creation. There is nothing, there is no one that is like God. God is set apart. And the angels see this. And Isaiah sees this. And we're going to see later what happens, what Isaiah does in return. What's interesting also about this, this passage is that when they say God is holy, 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 they say that the earth is filled with what? 
his glory. They don't say the earth is filled with his holiness. They don't say the earth is filled with his love. They don't say his earth, the earth is filled with his good deeds. No, no, no. The earth is filled with his glory. And so here, we're going to talk about what this word means in Hebrew. It's the word kabod, which gives the idea of something weighty, something heavy. And so when we think about something heavy, it's just like, just like back in the 70s and 60s when someone would say, someone would say something really deep and philosophical, and a bro would say, bro, that's heavy. I got to think about that, you know. Nowadays, we just go, bro, that's deep. You know, but that's the same idea here. This idea of something heavy, something weighty, something that, that causes you to ponder and think about. So, real quick, to define glory, glory is the measure of worthiness. Now, check this out. Check this out. Because God's glory, because God is infinite, his worthiness is infinite worth. His glory is infinite worth. There is no end to his worthiness. It is so vast, we can't measure it. And that's what we see in this text. We see, not only do we see that the whole earth is full of his glory, but we see his robe is, what is it doing? His robe, verse 1. The train of his robe is filling the temple. It doesn't say it right here, but the idea that it's giving is not that it's just filling. It's filling and overflowing out. God's glory is immeasurable. God's glory is immeasurable. And it's infinite worth. We see this in another passage, Isaiah, actually, Isaiah 40. He, he talks about the stars. And what's what we're going to focus on for just a second. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Notice, because of what? The greatness of his might. See, God literally, he did not metaphorically create the earth. He literally created the earth. And we could talk about how that happened on another day, but he literally created the earth and he just spoke it. He spoke it. Just his words. I can't do that. I can't say, hey, Legos, make something awesome. I can't do that. But God made the entire universe with the very breath of his mouth, with his very words. He thrust the stars into existence. Have you ever been outside of College Station in an area where there's no light pollution? and you've seen the stars, it's incredible. How many of you guys have been to Enchanted Rock? Only a couple. You guys are awesome, all right? You guys who haven't been, you're missing out, okay? Enchanted Rock is an awesome place with awesome things and awesome stars. You can see so many. You can see the Milky Way. It's, an, it's incredible. I remember a couple years ago, I went four times in one semester, and then I went two times the next. So I went six times total in one year. I love Enchanted Rock. But the best thing about Enchanted Rock isn't just the hiking around and climbing Enchanted Rock. It's the stars. The stars are truly incredible. There's hardly any light pollution. And when you go out there, you're going to look out and you're going to see billions of stars. And what's incredible about that is that it's not just a star. 
Most of the stars we look at are actually other galaxies with another billion stars within the galaxy. So when we're looking out and we're seeing a billion stars, we're actually seeing a billion, 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 billion stars. And God is so great that he literally just thrusts them into existence by his words. That's incredible. No one can do that. No one can ascribe themselves to that. Only God can. God is the greatest. And Isaiah sees that. Another reason why God is worthy is because he restores the broken. God restores the broken. Let's look at the text, verses 4 through 7. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. So first off, so you got this idea. Isaiah, he's in this room, the throne room of God, in the temple. He looks up and he sees seraphim, angels, worshiping God. They got six wings, and they're all worshiping God, all right? They're singing to one another, holy, holy, holy. And then you have this idea that the voice of the angel who's speaking, that very voice is trembling. It's shaking the temple. Shaking the temple. The only thing I can ascribe and maybe compare that to is there's two, two different things. The first thing is when you go to a concert. I mean, I mean, I've been to a lot of concerts, but when I go to concerts or rock concerts, you're going to hear a lot of bass, okay? And the bass literally shakes the foundations of wherever you're at. And it's like, it's like shaking your eardrums. It's pretty crazy. But here's another one. We all go to Kyle Field, and we will go to Kyle Field again September 6th. Yep. And there's going to be a, over 100,000 people. And we're all going to be screaming, yelling for the Aggies. It's going to shake. The ground's going to shake. You know, LSU Stadium, the ground actually shook so much that they, that they recorded an earthquake because LSU was screaming so much at their stadium. That's incredible. But here's the deal. This is one angel. One angel is trembling the very temple. And the temple's filling with smoke. So Isaiah, he sees all this, and his first reaction is, woe is me. Woe is me. The text doesn't say it, but often in the scripture, when somebody has the privilege of seeing the glory of God, they don't see him face to face, but they just get a glimpse of his glory, their first reaction is to get on the ground. And Isaiah doesn't do this, but I'm going to illustrate this for you guys, because when we see God, we begin to, rev- to see who God is for who he actually is. We naturally go, woe is me, I'm unclean. And literally, they, these people will get on the ground. It's humiliating. I hate this. This is so awkward. But it's humiliating. And that's why. Because they realize, no, God is the highest of the highest. There's no one like him. And so the person, the individual who sees him, they go, the first thing they say is, Woe is me. They get on the ground because they realize I am the lowest of lowest compared to this 
person, this being. There's no one like God. So Isaiah, he admits he's, he's unclean. He has unclean lips. He admits that he's unworthy. He also admits that the people he's living with are unclean. He's surrounded by uncleanness. He is unclean himself, and so he just he can't do anything. He's broken. So what does God do? What does Yahweh do? He sends an angel to cleanse him. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with the burning coal and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away from you, and your sin is forgiven. This doesn't make sense. So you got this God who is so great, vastly different. You got angels who are freaky, all right? They got six wings, and they're flying around, and they're amazing beings. Their voices are trembling the temple, and they're worshiping this God, this God, Yahweh. But does God have to? Is he obligated to clean Isaiah? Isaiah, who has readily admitted that he is unclean before God, therefore he has wronged this God, this great God. He's wronged him. God doesn't have to, but he does. He takes away the iniquity of Isaiah, takes it away. He also forgives Isaiah. Forgiving, when we read that, that just means that, that God no longer holds an account the wrong he was done. So for Isaiah, no longer does God hold an account his sins. That is grace at its finest. So God, he takes away the iniquity of Isaiah and he forgives him, something he does not have to do. He is not obligated. God does not exist to forgive our sins. That is not God's purpose. God does not exist for you. That's crazy. But he loves you and he loves Isaiah and he forgives Isaiah. That's grace. God restores the broken. That is what he does with Isaiah. He restores Isaiah. And one of the cool things about this truth is that this is what I want you to get. This is, this is awesome. This is going to, this encourages me on a day-to-day basis. God never, he never, he never, never, never uses perfect people to accomplish his purposes. God never, he's never done it, he's ne- and he never will, because everybody's imperfect. No one's perfect. He always uses imperfect people, and he restores them to do his work. That's awesome. That's incredible. That's so encouraging. That's who God is. He doesn't have to, but he does. God uses broken people. He restores them, and then he uses them. That's awesome. That's grace. That's grace. Now, when I was in college, I had an awesome opportunity to work for many different places here in town. I've worked at, I think, seven or eight different places here in town. Not a really good record. But I worked for Hungry Howie's. Who here likes pizza? Who here likes Hungry Howie's? Only a couple. That's cool. But you guys know. You guys know. Hungry Howie's is it's a cool place. But I was a delivery driver. And... I loved it. I got a lot of tips. That's the best part about that job. 
and I got paid minimum wage. So I got minimum wage and tips. It was awesome. But one night, I had received over $200 of cash from just various different people, from like payments and plus tips. So I had that all in my back pocket, and we're supposed to, the manager's supposed to cash you out on a 30-minute basis. All right, so every 30 minutes, we cash you out. That way, you don't get robbed or get hurt because you have so much money. But we were busy that night, so they forgot to do it. And it came to the end of the night, and I was about to leave, and they said, all right, so you owe us 200 and blah, blah, blah dollars. I was like, oh, cool, no problem. Pull it out. I had like $2. I had no idea where the rest of the money was. No idea. Basically, I owed them more money than I could ever really have. So I was terrified. I was like, oh my goodness. Not only did I just spend like 40 bucks on gas, but I owe them 200 plus dollars. It was, even right now, my stomach is turning because it's just a terrifying thing, all right? But the guy, my, my, my general manager, he looks at me, he takes me outside. I thought I was going to get a beat down. But he takes me outside, and he says, hey, how, much, how many tips did you get? How much, how much money in tips did you get? And I was like, ah, I think about $40. And I said, okay, cool. Hands me $40 and says, don't worry about the money. It's forgiven. No big deal. I trust you. I was like, what? <laughs> you serious, man? And he was like, yeah. The guy basically gave me more money than I owed him, all right? He did. He gave me more money than I owed him and forgave my debt. That is grace. And that's what God does here with Isaiah. He doesn't have to say, Isaiah, you know, your sins, they're ridiculous, and I'm not going to forgive you. He, doesn't have, he, doesn't, he can do that. He can do that. He has the right to do that. But he doesn't. He doesn't. And you see this over and over in Scripture. You see that God never uses perfect people to accomplish his purposes. Instead, he restores the broken. Another reason why God is worthy of our, our time and our, our worship is it's not just that he's great. It's not just that he restores the broken, but it's because he gives us significance. God gives us significance. Let's look at verse 8 through 9. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And God said, go. So when I say God gives us significance, I mean that God does that. Apart from him, all the things that we do are insignificant. They're just, a, it's a cyclical cycle. We get up, we go to work so that we can get money, so that we can pay for bills, so that we can get up tomorrow and do the same thing over and over and over and over. You get up, you guys are getting up tomorrow, to, or you're going to do this today. You're going to go home from this, and you're going to go, I'm going to study so I can do, get good grades but then you're going to have classes next semester so that you can do the same thing over and over and over and over and over. But when God restores us, he makes it possible for us to have not just any significance, but great significance, significance in serving him. See, our significance, 
our significance is in living our lives as an example of who he is. Our significance is found in living a life that reflects the very nature, the very character of who God is. I put it like this. God is glorified by the projection of his perfection with our lives. I emphasize with our lives because it's not just what you say or what you, you're thinking. It's what you do. It's what you do. Why you do what you do. Why you think what you think. Where's your heart in this? Your life is a reflection of who God is. And the way we accurately live a life of significance is by projecting the, ref- the perfections of who God is. That is where we find significance. Notice this, that in the text, who does he use? He uses the very man who he just restored. Notice number two. He uses a person, a man, a human. He doesn't use these crazy, awesome beings who have six wings. Who wants to fly? Me. And he doesn't use them. He doesn't use these creatures who who will never disobey him. He doesn't use them. No. He uses man. Not only does he use man, he uses the man who had wronged him. That's, That's incredible. That is God's grace. God gives you and me significance. That's awesome. It's really exciting to to get to this place. We go, okay, so God never uses perfect people. He never uses perfect people. Instead, he restores us and makes us significant. And the way we live a life that shows that significance is by projecting the glories of God, by living out his perfection. That's fascinating. He does that with Isaiah. You notice when Isaiah gives himself to, to God, he says, here am I, send me. God doesn't waste any time. He says, go. Go tell. Go and tell. Go and communicate. Not show and tell. Go and tell. All right? Go and tell. Go and communicate who I am. And what's cool about this is that when Isaiah is he's prophesying to the nation of Judah, they're about to go into exile, but God is gracious time and time again throughout the Old Testament. You see these prophets. God raises them up, and they're never perfect. He raises them up. And the purpose of their message is to, normally, is to warn them. Say, hey, get your act together. Obey the Mosaic law so that I don't have to send you in exile, all right? It's, it's grace upon grace. And then what's even cooler about that is that even when they go into exile, God is gracious to bring them back because God is gracious. So God is worthy. God is worthy of our, of our time Because he's great, he restores the broken, and he gives us significance. And the person who best displays, the best illustration, the best example of someone who lives a life worthy of the gospel, someone who reflects and projects the glory of God, is the church answer, Jesus. Jesus is the greatest example of this. He perfectly reflects who God is, and perfectly projects the character of God. Let's look at a verse, Hebrews 1.3a. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So, Jesus, God, the Son of God, he is God, but he comes in human form and lives a life 
that's perfect. He lives a life that's perfect. He comes down to earth in human form, which he does not have to do, just like the burning coal. He does not have to heal or take away Isaiah's sins. He doesn't have to do that. Jesus does the same thing. He does not have to come to earth. He chooses to. He comes to earth as a human, and he lives a perfect life. He loves unconditionally throughout his life, and he obeys the Father. And what does he do? It puts him on the cross. Why do you have to go to the cross? Because all of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us cannot measure up to the worthiness that God is. None of us are as great as God. None of us, we shouldn't even compare ourselves. We're so unworthy that we don't even come close to being right with God. We fall short every day. For all of sin falls short of the glory of God. And the problem with that is that sin deserves death. For the wages of sin is death. What is death? Death is physical and spiritual separation from God. So by nature, we deserve eternal separation from God. This great God who loves to restore, and he loves to be gracious, the God that we want to serve, we don't measure up to him ever. But Jesus, that's why he went to the cross. He went to the cross so that we could have a relationship with him. See, on the cross, Jesus absorbed all of the wrath of God. He absorbed absorbed the punishment for our sins on the cross. And that's the power of the cross. That's why we pray, we often pray and thank God for saving us. It's not something that we do repetitively, something that we, we consciously think, oh, man, I don't deserve you, God. But because of your death on the cross, I can have a relationship with you. That is awesome. So Jesus' death on the cross makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God, makes it possible to no longer be separated. And all you have to do to be in a relationship with Jesus, with God, is believe. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not maybe, not someday, maybe kind of. No, you will be saved. It doesn't say, believe and do good works and you'll be saved. It does not say, do good works and believe, kind of, and be saved. It says, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. That's the power of the cross. The cross does that for us. All we have to do is have faith that what Jesus did on the cross paid for our sins. And what's cool about this, what's ironic about this, is that when we place our faith in Christ, we're doing what Isaiah did. We're, we're beholding, we're saying, okay, God is perfect. I'm not. And the punishment for my imperfectness my sins is separation from God. That's Isaiah. He sees God and he goes, whoa, I'm unclean. But God does what he does with Jesus, with Isaiah. He heals us. He restores us. And he forgives us. All you have to do is believe. That's it. It's awesome. So God has given us this great gift, and it's the cross. And now we all can have great significance And see, the reason why we're talking about God's worthiness, the reason why these are so important to understand is that because if we don't live a life that's worshiping God, or if we don't live a life that we we say, okay, God is worthy of my time, if we don't see that, then we're not going to worship him. If we don't worship him, we're leading a life, or we're already in the life of 
no significance. We're going to live a life towards brokenness, more and more brokenness, more and more unhappiness, more and more unsatisfaction, more and more insignificance. That is why it's important to know that God is worthy. God's worthy of your time. And the way we live it out is by what? Reflecting the character of God, by projecting the perfections of, of God with our lives. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. Or Sorry, I've been doing a lot of camps. And we teach at night. So this morning, I want to bring us to a couple things. First thing, we're going to be like Isaiah and Jesus. We're going to be humble. This week, I want you guys to practice being humble. There's a lot of ways you can do this. But I'm going to give you a couple ways. All right. First of all, we're going to define humility. Humility is seeing God for who he is and acknowledging who you are in comparison. So it's saying, just like Isaiah, he sees God for who he is and he says, woe is me. When we start to reflect on who God is, what he's done for us on the cross, we naturally go, ah, oh, I'm nothing compared to you, God. But notice what it's not. Notice what humility is not. Humility is not me going, man, I can't throw the, the ball as far as Colton. Colton's cooler than me. Shucks, you know. Or, man, my, my brother is so good at wakeboarding, I, I just stink at it. That's not humility. That's called uh, being sorry for yourself and being actually prideful because you think that you're supposed to be as good as that. But humility is not thinking about what other people are like. It's not if you're a girl. I mean, maybe some guys struggle with this, but if you're a girl, you might think, man, she's so pretty and I'm not. That's not what it is. It is not, that is not humility. That is feeling sorry for yourself. What's humility is thinking about God. And where does he, who is he? That's humility. And I say this nonchalantly, but you know, in reality, this is hard for me too. These applications are not easy for me. I don't go, I don't give you applications and say, hey, yeah, these are awesome, you should do them because they're real easy. No, they're hard. It's hard to not be jealous of Colton throwing the football, okay? It's hard not to be jealous of that. It's, it's hard not to be jealous of someone's looks. That's hard. But when you want to start to be humble, you got to think rightly. And the way you think rightly is you think about God. Who is he? Where is he? What has he done for you? And a really practical way to help yourself be humble is reflect on the cross. Reflect on what did Jesus do on the cross and where would you be apart from that? Because the moment we do that, the moment we start thinking about the power and the forgiveness and the grace involved on the cross, that's when we start to realize, man, I am insignificant apart from God. And this naturally wells up this desire to serve him. That's what Isaiah does. God says, who will go for me? Isaiah says, here am I. Take me. I want to go for you. You just restored me. I didn't ha- you didn't have to. You didn't need to. You did. And I want to serve you. So be humble. Next thing is we need to love. Isaiah practiced this. We don't read it right now, but we'll see it. If you read through Isaiah, you would see how he naturally started to, he would preach to the, to the nation of Judah. And he did this because he was obeying God. He was doing this, he was serving them. He was loving them. So what we want to do is when we're being humble, we want to love. In fact, the two are 
you can't really have one without the other. You can't be humble and not love somebody. And you can't love somebody without being humble. So you got to be humble and you got to love. How, do, how can we love? Well, let's think back to the cross. How did Jesus love? Jesus lived his life, literally ate and dined with humans, with us, which is, right? He literally was a best friend with Peter and James and John. That's fascinating. Not only did, not only did he do that, but he washed their feet. That's disgusting. They would walk miles and miles and miles with sandals in the dirt. I don't think I've ever washed Sarah's feet, and I don't think I want to. But so Jesus washed their feet. Jesus served them. He loved them. And so for you guys, how does that look? How do we be humble and love others through service? First, remember the cross. Think about the cross. But then also, how do we actively do that? That's just your mind. I want to, how do we act out remembering the cross? Or how do we act out loving others? Little, little things, the little things, like your roommates, hey, wash the dishes for them. Guys, maybe you don't want to ever wash the dishes, and that's okay. But what if you, with your bros and your roommates, you made them breakfast, and you washed the dishes? That's a good way to love somebody, to serve them. Those are just a few examples, but it's, it's not hard to start thinking about how can we love others? How can we? And that's what God wants us to do. When we realize that God is worthy, that he is the greatest, there's no one like him, that he restored you, and that he gives you significance, it should spur up this natural desire to reflect him by loving others and being humble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do love you, and we are so thankful for the cross. We're thankful for you sacrificing everything, your body and just who you were, your, everything about you. You sacrificed it all so that we could have a relationship with you. And God, I, I pray for those here who, who may be broken, that you would begin to show them that, that you love them uh, and that you desire to restore them. Lord, I pray for those who are who have placed their faith in you, that you would well up, well up in them this desire to glorify you, to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, that they would live a life that reflects who you are. And ultimately, God, I pray that we, didn't, we would be transformed as a people here, here at Grace, whether it's college, whether it's youth, whether it's the big service, that we'd be transformed as a people who accurately reflect who you are, that people on the outside wouldn't say, oh, that's grace. It's this awesome church that teaches the word. They would, they would say, no, it's grace. A church that, that loves unconditionally, that, that lives a life that they think, man, that is, if that's who God is, that's what I want to follow. That God, I pray that you would give us that mentality, that you give us that heart, that you give us that lifestyle. And Lord, I pray that you would show us the ways that we can grow. Lord, we desperately want to be in your plan and we desperately want to be a part of what you're doing so I pray that you would help us to see ways that we can love and help us to see ways that we can actively pursue humility in the right way God we love you and we praise you in your sins we pray Amen